Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good? Awesome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. My friend Patty would love to give you a Bible so you can read along with us. Uh, if you're one of the students going in the youth group, we're excited for you to go to camp. My life was changed at summer camp. I came to know Jesus at camp. I had uh, I felt the experience of call to ministry at camp. It was awesome. And, and I had people pay my way to camp. And so if you've given, thank you so much for giving. Uh, we're excited about what's coming these students' way. And if you're a parent, you're like, I just want them out of my house. So uh, <laughs> students, this is what's called a win-win scenario. You get to be out of the house, and they get to have you out of the house. So uh, we have high hopes for what's happening this week. Uh, awesome. Well, Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be in just a moment. Uh, as many of you know, I have three daughters, and one of them is eight years old. Her name is Harper, and just recently she said her first curse word. Uh, yeah, we heard it across the house, and I was like, that didn't sound like an adult. That's, so, uh, so uh, and, and since experiencing this, uh, she had just heard it somewhere. It didn't come out of her. She had heard it somewhere. But And, and talking to others, we've learned there's a couple of different ways that you parent through curse words. Um, and way number one is the way of defense. And so here's what that looks like. You hear a curse word, and then you respond, and you go ask, where'd you hear that from? Who told you that? And you call the parent. Uh, another way to think about this is like a, the, the Christmas story way of of dealing with cuss words. If you ever watched the Christmas story, Ralphie, he's out changing the tire with his dad, the, loses the lug nuts, and he says, the queen mother of all curse words. You remember that? And then they take him home and put soap in his mouth, and they're like, who told you that? And he sells out his friend Schwartz, and mom calls, I'm telling you too much of the story now. But that is one of the ways you can deal with cursing is by playing defense. Who told you that? Where'd you hear that? And you kind of wait for it to happen, and then you respond. The other way to parent through curse words is like playing offense. And that's where you sit your child down in front of you and you tell them every single cuss word that exists. And you have them say it back to you. Yeah, and then you spell them, you use them in a sentence, you give the background. Uh, yeah, this is like the Scripps National Spelling Bee Championship version of parenting. And that is also an option for you out there. And you're like, is that, it's, it's a real option. So you have the Christmas story version or the Scripps Spelling Bee version of how you parent through uh, curse words. If you have a third way uh, that you'd like to share, you can email that to jesse at gracesd.com. And he would, uh, I shouldn't say that. People mix up Jesse and I all the time. So those are the options on how to deal with parenting. And honestly, that, that's, that's a, a way that you can apply to a lot of topics regarding parenting children. Uh, this offense-defense concept, that's similar to, to ways you can think about how the church responds to difficult scenarios and how we speak to things in culture. Sometimes we play offense, sometimes we play defense. We don't always do that perfectly, and sometimes you want us to play offense, and we're playing defense, and it's a whole thing that you have to navigate, and it's not always easy. Uh, and today, whether you know it or not, I'm, I'm about to inform you that in Mark chapter 7, we are about to engage uh, an incredibly controversial scripture, that this passage of scripture uh, has been misrepresenting Jesus in some ways throughout culture, and, and so we're going to play some offense today with Mark chapter 7. I want to sit you down, script spelling bee style, and I want to tell you all of the ways that this passage is being used and for us to talk about it so that we can engage this together. So we're going to take advantage of this story to play offense regarding a sensitive and important topic in culture. And that topic is the topic of race and racism. So that's what's coming our way. And, and here, let me just remind us, 
Over the last 18 weeks, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and Mark has been making a claim about Jesus, and the claim is that Jesus is the rightful king of the world, he's the Lord of all, and he is, he's entered into the world to institute his kingdom, and we're watching him institute his kingdom under the banner of this story called the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life, which you and I couldn't live, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. Then he died a substitutionary death that we deserved. And then he rose from the dead offering us a gift that we couldn't earn because we're not perfect. That's the story of the gospel being played out in the story of the kingdom of God. And Mark is proclaiming that to us. But today, the story that we're going to connect with in Mark 7 is it's, it's being used with, there's an increasing amount of frequency of, of, of culture using the story to say that Jesus was not sinless, and not just not sinless, but more than that, that he was uh, sexist, that Jesus was a racist, but thankfully, uh, because of the Syrophoenician woman, he was willing to repent and to grow and to change, and that's why this topic is controversial. So, let's play some offense. I want to show you the places that have been spoken about Jesus in Mark chapter 7 that say he was a sexist, a racist, and that he abused his power. I want to show you just in the last few years we've seen this in very popular places. So in 2016, a Harvard Law student wrote to Harvard Law and others in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. He referenced Mark 7 in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. And here's what he said. I I brought the quote. We're going to put it on the screen, and I'm going to show you script spelling me style what's going on. So here we go. Harvard Law student says, uh, it, Mark 7, is one of the most unsettling passages in the New Testament. This isn't the Jesus Christians like to think about. This is Jesus apparently insulting and dehumanizing a desperate woman seeking the health of her family. This is Jesus writing Gentiles off as second-tier citizens. Jesus' statement was full of prejudice and ethnocentrism. You see... Jesus doesn't just cling to his prejudice, though. He listens. Jesus listens, and he changes his mind. And the hero of the story is not Jesus, but the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus had prejudices from his community that were magnified by his insulation from those who could challenge his view. But he listens when his views are challenged. He concedes his erroneous ethnocentrism, and he turns divine compassion toward all people everywhere. Jesus shows us in the story that inheriting bias is inevitable, but holding on to it is a choice. Point number one, that's from 2016, Harvard Law. In 2017, I read an article by a feminist scholar who said Jesus' response to the Syrophoenician woman was not only dismissive and demeaning, but furthermore, he slandered her, he mistreated her, and this scripture is exhibit A to show us that Jesus is in fact not without sin because of how he treated this woman. Uh, In 2019, there was a viral video uh, of a man teaching this passage, and, and what he does is he's teaching this passage in regard to being an ethnic minority and experiencing racism. And he said the story reminded him of all the times that he had been called a dog by someone in power. And he referenced trying to buy a house or trying to get a reservation at a restaurant, and whoever on the phone is talking to him would hear his accent, and they would ultimately treat him like a dog, and they were the ones with power, that he had been bullied uh, by those in power. And so in the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, what you have is someone in power, Jesus, treating an ethnic minority like an outcast, and that is the story uh, that he teaches. And then most recently in 2022, uh, a viral TikTok 
uh, which is, you guys know what TikTok is? Yeah, some of you. It's a social media platform for the kids, right, that mostly involves dancing and other things. But a TikTok went viral, and the title of the TikTok was called Jesus is a Racist. And in this TikTok, some of you may have seen it on your For You page, uh, I want to quote this to you as well. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus calls her a dog. And what's amazing about the account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power and confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even the dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. And Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to the woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudice and bias. And when confronted with it, he's willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and to speak truth. So as you can feel your anxiety rising like me, stay with me. It gets, there's more. Um, I used to pastor a church in Pullman, Washington. And the church, uh, we didn't have a building. So we met in a high school and an event center in a junior high. And there was one time where I was meeting with a local church in town. And we were talking to them about using their building on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. for our college student uh, church service. And uh, we were talking, and the sermon that the church had preached the week before this conversation was a sermon called Jesus Made Mistakes Too. Jesus Made Mistakes Too, and it was Mark chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman. And so this lady was asking me, it was very kind, we talked for about an hour, but she's asking me, she's like, do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus made mistakes too? Because if you don't believe that, there may be some theological differences that don't allow us to to share the building with you. Do you believe Jesus made mistakes too? And so my response is, um, we we were sitting in the auditorium and I could see the stage and above the stage was this massive cross like in the wall. And I asked her, I just said, uh, ma'am, what do you think happened on the cross? Like, why is that the symbol of the church and Christianity, like, what do, you, what do you believe happened there? And she said, I believe that that's where uh, Jesus was a victim uh, of the Roman authorities' power against him, and he was an ethnic minority, and he's an example for us to fight back against the power. And I was like, yes, ma'am, I think our theological differences may be so great that we cannot share a building. Uh, but that, that's, that's what happened, that, and that was in the town I pastored. And so here, here's the question. Does Mark chapter 7 show us that Jesus was a racist? Does the story teach us that Jesus was a sexist? Does the story show us that Jesus had power against an ethnic minority? Does does the story teach us that Jesus has no compassion? What's happening here? Well, let's, let's take a look at it together. So Mark 7 verse 24. Here we go. It says, Jesus left that place, and that place was Israel. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. So just as a way of reminder, Jesus and his disciples have created quite the stir in Israel. They've had this moment where they fed 5,000 people, which is really probably feeding 15,000. Jesus has walked on water. They've healed people with sicknesses and diseases. They have made a massive uh, you know, impact on the place where they are. And, and essentially, Jesus is too famous in Israel to go anywhere. He can't go anywhere. So he tries to get away to get a little rest. So he has to leave Israel to do so. And this is the only time Mark records Jesus leaving Israel's boundaries. So I brought a map here to show you where this is in that world. So you've got Israel here. Uh, Tyre is north of Israel. So it's 
uh, 20 miles northwest of Capernaum. Tyre is situated in ancient Phoenicia and under the power of Syria. Uh, it's now modern-day Lebanon. Fun fact, Jezebel, uh, in the Old Testament, she is from Tyre. That's where she's from. And so that's, that's the geographical backdrop. He has left Israel. He has left the nation to be, uh, to be alone, to find some rest with his disciples. Here's what's interesting. The theological backdrop of this geography is that Jesus has been teaching over and 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 over one thing, and that's clean versus unclean. Clean versus unclean. That's what he's teaching over and over and over again. Clean versus unclean. You see it in every story, clean versus unclean. Last week, he just engaged the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. Why? Because he said the disciples' hands weren't clean. And Jesus is like, I'm not interested in hands. I'm interested in hearts. You guys are hypocrites. So there's this huge engagement about God's law there. And so this clean versus unclean teaching is now being played out by Jesus taking his disciples outside of Israel to the region of Tyre that is notoriously unclean. Uh, First century historian uh, Josephus said Tyre represented the most bitter enemy that the Jews had, maybe even worse than the Samaritans. Uh, This is the most pagan place among the most pagan place. One historian called it uh, a hotbed of idolatry which is just a great way to call something. Uh, I was at a Padres game a couple weeks ago, and they were playing the Mets, and all the Mets fans were in one spot, and that spot was a hotbed of idolatry. <laughs> it, it was just, it was bad. And many of them got thrown out of the game, which was kind of awesome, but it was absolute chaos. And uh, sadly, the Padres lost, so I, I was mad about it. It's just a great phrase, a hotbed of idolatry. So that's, that's where Jesus takes his disciples, the most unclean. And so we read from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know it, comma, but Jesus could not be hidden, which to me is just such a beautiful detail that I love in this story because I think as we work through the text, that truth will remain true today, that no matter the effort we take, no matter the effort to hide Jesus or to misrepresent Jesus, uh, I think we'll find that Jesus cannot be hidden from us. And so in verse 25, the story continues. Uh, In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, she came and she fell at Jesus' feet. He doesn't want to be known, but he can't be hidden. And the Gospel of Mark is fast, so immediately when she hears about him, she runs in and she falls at Jesus' feet. And it says this woman was a Greek born in Phoenicia, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So she makes a scene falling at the feet of Jesus. It's not her house, but she hears that he's there. She runs in, falls at his feet, and says, my daughter's being overpowered by an impure spirit. Now listen, I have, I have three little girls. I can imagine what this feels like. The fear, the, the pain that this mom's going through. She's desperate. She's needy. She has no concern for social boundaries. The Bible doesn't say she knocked on the door. It doesn't say she came in quietly. She just bust in. The famous rabbi is in her town, and she has beliefs about this famous rabbi, so she's willing to make a scene, and she walks in and begs him to heal her daughter. In Matthew's account, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that when she busts in the door, she cries out, Lord, son of David, my daughter has an impure spirit. Would you have mercy on me? Lord, son of David. So Matthew's Gospel tells us that this woman calls Jesus Lord three times, and adds the messianic title, son of David. But what's interesting is that she is not an Israelite. 
She's not from Israel, yet she's claiming that truth for herself. I know who you are. You're the son of David. You're the promised king of Israel. You're the Lord over all. I know that about you, and I'm desperate for help. And so she is, she's understanding something about Jesus that the Pharisees didn't understand, that even the disciples didn't understand. What's crazy about this text is that the Syrophoenician woman calls Jesus Lord before any of the disciples call him Lord. Before anyone else calls him Lord, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, they don't have Peter calling Jesus Lord for two more chapters. But the Syrophoenician woman calls him Lord three times. So Peter, when he calls Jesus Lord, he has already heard the confession of the Syrophoenician woman calling him Lord. You're the Messiah. The only other entity to call Jesus the son of David was the demons. We know who you are, son of David. Are you here to kill us? Yes, actually, that's why I'm here. Thank you for noticing. Literally why I've come. So they know who he is, and so does she. And so the woman, it almost pictures what prayer is, that that she just runs in and falls at his feet powerless, begs for mercy, pleads with him relentlessly, tells him who he is, and asks for help over and over again. It's a beautiful picture of prayer. A theologian, J.C. Ryle, he says this. He says, hopeless and desperate as this little girl's case appeared. This little girl had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there's always hope. This mom busts in the room. Jesus, can you heal my daughter? I know who you are. You're you're capable. I'm desperate. Can you heal her? And verse 27 is the controversy. Jesus responds, first let the children eat all they want, he told her. Can you heal my daughter? First let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Let's let's be clear. This is a typical response from Jesus from someone who wants a healing. Someone will come to Jesus and ask to be healed, and Jesus will usually respond to them with a question that raises the stakes. We've seen this three times already in the Gospel of Mark. Someone will come and ask for healing, and Jesus will ask them, do you believe I can do this? That's the question. The the woman with the issue of bleeding, she comes and she touches him. And what does Jesus say? Who touched me? He raises the stakes. Who touched me? There's another time a healing's happening. He He asked the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus raises the stakes to say it's not about this healing. It's not about this sign and this wonder. What is a sign in the Bible? It's pointing to something else. Jesus is willing to heal, but he's raising the stakes. He's raising the stakes for everyone to see. And he says this, let the children eat first. It's not right to take the children's food and toss it to the dogs. Is this racist? Is this sexist? Is this insensitive? Is this incompassionate? What is he doing? Is he calling her a dog? What's happening here? Well, here's what is happening. First, the story gives us a glimpse into the tension of Jesus' mission. The story is giving us a glimpse into the tension of Jesus' mission. Stay with me. This trip was planned on purpose. He's going here deliberately. His mission is to the Gentiles, the people outside of Israel's territorial bounds, outside of the 12 tribes. He's going to the Gentiles. And the story is about God's grace going to the Gentiles. Because just last week we saw that Jesus declared all food clean. He's doing something here. And there's something else that's happening. Every time this happens, I want to show it to us, that this story has an Old Testament mimic. There's an Old Testament shadow here. 
There's only one other time you get a story of a prophet being in the region of Tyre, in that region. And it's in 1 Kings 17 when Elijah is in the region of Tyre, and there's a huge drought that's hit Israel, and he finds a widow and he asks her for bread. And the widow says, I have enough flour and enough oil for one day. And Elijah's like, well, make me some bread and God will provide. And the next day it just keeps working, keeps working. And so Elijah the prophet is with this Gentile widow. And at the Gentile widow's house, her son dies. And so this Gentile woman asks a prophet, Elijah, to raise her son from the dead. The first documented resurrection in the Old Testament. Where does it happen? Right here. Who does it happen for? A Gentile woman. Elijah raises her son from the dead. The disciples know this story. They know the story. Everybody knows the story. And here you have a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, talking to a prophet, capital P prophet, Jesus. What's she asking for? Can you heal my sick daughter? I know, what it, I, I know the story of Elijah and what's happened here. And this is going on in their midst. There's a shadow here. But this illustrates the tension of the mission, that Jesus' mission is to extend the gospel and the kingdom to the ends of the earth, all ethnos, all peoples with an S, all peoples. That's the mission. But this came from the people of Israel. This is all the way back to the Old Testament, that God blessed Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. It's, it's the built-in tension to Jesus' mission. So he sits with her. Jesus tells her, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. What is happening here is Jesus is clearly talking about the children of God rejecting his promises and now giving that food to those who are not the children of God. That's what's being taught about his mission. And the whole future of the movement is being informed by this situation. And the disciples get a first front row view, firsthand view of Jesus modeling the tension of the mission. But that, that's, that's still not what we're asking. We're asking the question, is Jesus being racist here? No. He's exposing the racial tension, yes. He's using a, a racial slur that is being used by culture, yes. But he's not saying it to her from his person. He's saying this is what they think about you. So Jesus is speaking to her in accordance to the thoughts of the Jews. They call you a dog. Is it right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs? Because that's what they call you. You're a dog. I remember being in my Christian ethics class, Dr. Jeff Holloway, 16, 17 years ago. And I'll never forget us asking him this question. Is Jesus a racist? And I remember him going like, what, what do you mean? And we talk about the Syrophoenician woman. And he said, here's what's hard with the Bible. He said, you, you don't often read it in its emotional context. And we're like, Dr. Holloway, what are you talking about? He's like, here's how I think this played out. I think Jesus is smiling. And I think he, he has compassion for this woman. And he loves her. She called him the messianic title. She's called him Lord three times. He came on purpose. This has an echo of John chapter 4, where he just is accidentally at the well when the woman at the well shows up. Oh, how convenient. Could you give me some water? Woman at the well, oh, by the way, she's a Samaritan, but he's not racist to her. But he, and so Dr. Holloway just keeps walking us through this, and he's like, listen, guys, the gospel of Matthew starts with a Gentile magi being the first to worship Jesus the baby. The gospel of Matthew ends with the commission for the disciples to go to all nations, Gentiles included, to get the gospel to them. Do you think that Matthew would record some middle story here that 
you know, disqualifies all that from happening. No, Jesus is smiling at her. And, and he thinks he's being playful. This is, he thinks this is a parable of being playful. They call you dogs. You know that, right? They, they, they don't believe you're worthy of the food that belongs to the children. They call you dogs. The children have to eat first, and then we can give food. But, but, but you can't have it because you're not one of the children. And her response, I, I believe that in this interaction, she sees what Jesus is doing, and she responds to him in connection with how he's being playful. And it's brilliant. I can't, the children must eat first. It's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. And her response is, Lord, she replied. So apparently she's not offended. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This Greek-speaking Gentile, Syrian, Phoenician, Canaanite woman, the Gentile of all Gentiles, there is no further picture of being outside of the promised people of God than this. And she tells Jesus, yes, Lord, I understand you were not sent for me. Yes, Lord, I understand that it would be wrong for you to give me some of the children's bread from the table. But it's almost like she says, but let me ask you this, Jesus. What if some food fell off the table? Could I have it then? You said the children could eat first, but are you saying I can eat second? There's a playful exchange here. My mind instantly goes to the movie Dumb and Dumber where Jim Carrey asked that girl, what's the chances we get together? And he, she says, one in a million. And Jim Carrey smiles and goes, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> and Jesus is like, I can't give you the children's food. And she's like, but you're saying there's a chance. You're saying it could fall off the table. And even the dogs will take what falls off the table. Jesus leaves the door open in this little parable. She responds beautifully, brilliantly with this touche in the same vein of the parable. It's the only time in the scriptures where Jesus offers a parable and someone responds in a parable. It's beautiful. And she says, so you're saying there's a chance. She responds in faith. Listen, she has no grounds of her own to expect help from Jesus. She's outside of the covenant. She's a stranger to the promise of Israel. She's a Gentile. But she's talking to the Messiah and she's going to take her chance in faith. So she says, yes, Lord, the bread is for the children, but you're here, and I'll take the scraps. Because your scraps are enough to provide healing for my daughter, and this Syrophoenician woman believed something about Jesus that, again, was greater than even what the disciples believed, and Jesus saw who she was, she saw who he was, and he, he was moved by her faith. So the story gives us a glimpse into the tension of the mission of Jesus. And secondly, the story gives us a glimpse into Jesus' person, into who he is and what he's like. He's being kind towards her. He's being playful with her. He's being connected with her. He's showing the tension. But in the end, verse 29, he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found her child laying in bed and the demon gone. Listen, in the Gospels, it's only the Gentiles who are ever commended for having great faith. In Matthew's account of this, Matthew says, Jesus tells the disciples, this woman has great faith, commendable faith. In the Gospels, it is only the Gentiles who can be healed with the word of Jesus. The, Jews, the Jewish people always had to have Jesus present, touching them to provide healing. The great faith is never, that, that is something that's never given, never said of an Israelite. 
So there's something happening here with this woman's faith that is commendable and beautiful. And nothing in this exchange made it feel like she was being demeaned. And nothing in this exchange made it feel like Jesus had to say he was sorry. It feels like everything in this story was beautifully showing the tension of the future mission and a glimpse into Jesus' personhood. So what bums me out about these additional applications of this story is that what people do when they take Jesus, who is the great authority, he's the greatest authority that's ever lived, he's the most compelling figure in human history, so it does you well to apply Jesus to your cause. It's people do it all the time. But what bums me out is when you apply Jesus to your cause, oftentimes you lose the real Jesus. You sacrifice Jesus at the altar of your call, and you miss out on the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. It happens all the time. So in the Syrian refugee crisis, this guy says, we need to act like Jesus and repent and receive refugees. And what's lost is that Jesus is more concerned about refugees than any of us. When it comes to racial inequality and favoritism, we start to leverage Jesus as some guy who needed to repent of his racism. And we get we're completely blinded by the reality that Jesus has done more to heal, heal racial division than anybody. Jesus is more grieved by injustice than anybody. And yes, there has been times when people throughout history have used the Bible to, to do broken and horrific things. But often the healing came from those broken and horrific things from other people who rightly understood the Bible. The abolitionists were moved by the story of the gospel to fight back against the slavery of that time. And when it comes to Jesus being sexist, it blows me away. Because Jesus has done more for women's rights throughout history than anyone. And the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches that man and woman were made equally in the image of God, equal in value, equal in worth. That there is no second tier way to be human. Jesus says everyone made in the image of God. Psalm 139 says that we were created in our mother's womb, that the hair on our head has been numbered, that our tears are being captured. Like we are precious. There is a sanctity in this whole story. And Jesus is the one writing that story. And the teaching of Jesus gives us a much higher ethic than just that we're made in the image of God. It tells us to love one another as neighbors, as neighbors. And then it even goes further than that, not just love your neighbor, but love your enemy. Who teaches that? Pray for those who persecute you. When someone hits you on this cheek, turn to them the other. Someone wants your shirt, give them your jacket. There's, there's an ethic that Jesus provides that is greater than any other ethic. So if you'll forgive me when I get a little frustrated when I hear people take this story and talk about Jesus being racist, when I sit here and go, no one hates racism more than Jesus. No one hates oppression more than Jesus. And, and so let me, let me tell you what I, what I really mean. I, I believe that in this story with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus has in his mind what is going to happen ultimately in the story of the kingdom. This is a microcosm with the Syrophoenician woman that's representing a macrocosm of what Jesus has ultimately come to achieve for us in the gospel. And that's what fires me up about this because I believe Jesus knew what was going to happen, that sure, there would be hostile racial divide in the world, but Jesus was going to provide something to cure that hostility that no one else could provide. And Jesus was going to take on racism and replace it with reconciliation. And so the story doesn't just give us 
a picture of the tension of the mission. And the story just doesn't give us a glimpse into Jesus' person. The story also gives us a glimpse into what Jesus achieved for us eternally. He achieved something for us eternally. You see this through the book of Acts. You see this in the remainder of the New Testament. And what I want to do now is I want to read to you what Jesus has achieved for us. And I want you to feel this in its emotional context. I want you to feel this in light of the story of the Syrophoenician woman and what just happened there. And I want you to read, like I'm going to read this to you, but, but read along with me and experience this text post, posted next to the question, was Jesus a racist? Based on this text, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, underline that in your Bible, highlight that in your Bible. The Apostle Paul just said, there was a time when you who were separate, the uncircumcised and the circumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the uncircumcised dogs is what the Israelite people would call the Gentiles. So remember that, Syrophoenician woman, the dogs, remember that. That's how it was. That's what used to be. That was the tension of what we walked in. But now, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Are you kidding me? That's not in the Bible. I added that part. Are you kidding me? God is a reconciling God. The gospel is a message of reconciliation. And the gospel doesn't just declare us to be brought near to God. It also declares us to be brought near to each other. To brought near to people who were once considered so different from ourselves on so many levels. The gospel restores our relationship to God and the gospel restores our relationship to each other. God through his spirit indwelling in us is doing the work to remove prejudice and bias and fear and favoritism and God in his spirit is doing the work to bring peace among those who were once enemies and if Jesus Christ had one single sin then he no longer has the necessary qualifications to do what the Bible just says he came to do if he has one single sin 
then he does not possess what is necessary to atone for our sins. He does not have the credentials if he sins one single time. So calling Jesus a racist and saying that he repented is no small claim. Our salvation is at stake in that claim. Your salvation, my salvation is at stake in that claim. What happened on the cross means everything. To the, to the church, to us as followers of Jesus, and the claim is that Jesus sinlessly went to the cross in my place and took on my sin. And it's beautiful. So Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he's reminding of this. He says, you used to call each other names. You used to call them dogs. Remember? But the gospel is going to go out of Israel now. It's going to go into Tyre. It's going to go into Phoenicia. It's going to go into Syria. It's going to go into Lebanon. It's going to go into Samaria. The gospel is going to go out. And it's not going to go out because Jesus was a racist and he repented of his sins. Go spread the gospel that you too can change. It's going to go out because he was made, he made peace possible. And it's going to go out and it's going to move us. So those of us who are different in the gospel there's a healing possible that, that, that no one is a dog anymore in the gospel. Yes, there's, the Jewish people had privileges and benefits that the Gentiles didn't possess, but now it's different. But now, I know there's a lot of history and brokenness, but now, here's what Christ is doing. I know there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of unknown, but now, here's what's happening. I know our culture is struggling to make headway in this space, but now in Christ, here's what is possible. Am I erasing injustice when I say that? No. But I'm saying Jesus is the only hope and peace we have going forward to fix any of this. None of what I'm saying is, is an erasing of past or brokenness. I'm saying we need to look again to Christ if we want any hope of healing, if we want any semblance of being the part, the kingdom of God in the middle of this culture. And what moves me so much about this passage it, it's, it's where the location of our peace is found that's so powerful and so moving to me. The Bible says he himself is our peace. In his body, he took two groups and made one man. Great, great church, Jesus has reconciled us in his body. That in himself, he took on the sin of racism in his body. The sin of favoritism, the sin of bias, the sin of privilege. He took that on in his body. And he overcame it, he endured it, and he killed it on the cross. And he buried it in the tomb and he rose from the dead, making available new humanity for the church. A new building being built in the church where he is the cornerstone. And this new humanity, hear me, this new humanity is not colorblind. Revelation 5 says in the end that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be represented around this throne. And yes, we are beautiful. And yes, that is different. But it is now worth celebrating. It's worth honoring. It's, it's worth showing glory to because it shows us the creativity and the beauty and the brilliance of our God. 
that every time I see someone different than me, they're made in the image of God, and they have a, a glory about them that, that God has made in his image that I don't have, and I can celebrate that. I can be excited about that, and when I see racial differences, I can celebrate those things. Interracial marriages can be celebrated because everything is showing the uniqueness and the glory of our God, and your culture and your background and your history and your story show me something about God. And they show me in the life of the church, it is better when we come together and we look different, but we have something that happened inside of us that draws us together in unity. It moves us. When we can showcase what's unique about a culture, they can celebrate that. It's beautiful. It's fun. It can become one of your favorite things to do. Uh, this, this last two weeks ago, we had our men's retreat, and there's a family in our church named Abel and Yorda, and they, they, they have an Ethiopian restaurant. They're, they're from Ethiopia, and for the first time, I'm 39 years old. I've never had Ethiopian food. Don't judge me, people, but I've never had it. I'm not cultured like you. Sorry. But I sat down. I'm like, hey, what do I eat? And Abel's kind of telling me what to eat, and everybody's telling me what's going on. They're like, there's, and they teach me. So I sit down. I start eating Ethiopian food, and then instantly, like one bite in, I am mad at everyone who knew Ethiopian food existed and didn't tell me Ethiopian food existed, and I'm just like, all of y'all are my enemy. Because this was out there, and I've wasted so much of my life not eating this food. I was mad. So mad. And it was a celebration. That, praise God, this is what's available in Christ. That we can celebrate. And I know that's just food. Uh, Amy and I joke about this all the time. So my mom is Mexican, so I grew up just eating Mexican food all the time. I ate tortillas with everything. It was like we'd have uh, burritos for dinner and then breakfast burrito for breakfast and then bean and cheese tacos for lunch. It's just what we ate. And so when I get married, uh, Amy would say things. My wife would be like, we can't have Mexican food again. And I'd be like, babe, when you're Mexican, it's just food. Like it's, <laughs> it's not Mexican food. It's just called food. It's just it doesn't make sense what you're saying to me. Why would I not want enchiladas for dinner? It has no bearing on what I had earlier. It's just food. It's just food. She's, she's, she's been converted to my ways now. It's great. It's been great. Uh, and, and I know that's just silly stuff, but, but there's, there's a beauty in seeing the differences and celebrating. Are we where we need to be yet? No, of course not. Is one sermon going to fix everything? No, of course not. We need long conversations. We, as a church, we need to... To, to honor diversity. We need to be really sensitive to each other in places where there's racial sensitivity. We've got to work to honor. There's so much work to do, but the work has to be done from a perfect Jesus who modeled it perfectly, not from a Jesus who was racist and changed his heart because of the Syrophoenician woman. We, we've got to start on the right foot. So Grace Church, Jesus is no racist. He's the reconciler of all races. He's a glorious gracious God who took on our sin in his body. And we see that he has no, no sensitivity towards racism. We can be sensitive towards one another while all the while not tolerating racism. In the, in the book of Acts, Paul, he confronts Peter for racism. It's like, that's not how we do this in the church anymore. You can't act this way around those people and this way around those. He confronts them. Even in the Old Testament, God confronts Miriam because she opposed Mary, uh, Moses marrying a black wife. Like, this, this is not how we're going to do this in the life of the church under God's leadership. And this is a place where the kingdom of God can look different than the world. So the nature of Christ's mission is that those who were far off would be brought near. Most of us in Grace Church are Gentiles. If you happen to be part of the 12 tribes of Israel, that is so cool. But the odds are that's none of us. You're all Gentiles. Every single one of us is Gentiles. 
And so the, the gospel says the promise that was not ours, in Christ it is now ours. And so we shouldn't look at the Syrophoenician woman and think Jesus is racist. We should look at the Syrophoenician woman and think, wow, that was me. I'm not a child of the promise. But the promise is now available to me. And I don't have to eat scraps from the table. In Christ, I'm invited to the table. I'm invited to the banquet. I've been reconciled in Christ's body. I've been healed in Christ's body. I have divine access to the power of God in Christ's body. I have new heaven and new earth available to me in Christ's body. There's celebration of diversity in Christ's body. And that is the most beautiful message in the world. And it should be extended to the ends of the earth. And it's good news. And so Grace Church, that's what we want to offer you this morning. An invitation again to Christ's body. So in just a moment, the band's going to come out and lead us in a couple of songs. And we want to invite you to take part in communion. We'll also have prayer partners available if you need to pray. Don't miss this opportunity. If you would be so bold to say, man, I'm struggling with this. I have bias. I have these feelings of superiority. Repent. Turn to Jesus again and let him heal you. It's in his body you find the peace you were looking for. It's in his body that the racial hostility is healed. So I want to pray that we'd be these kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word that challenges us and changes us and moves us. God, we thank you that there's nowhere else we can go to find healing except Christ. The best the world has to offer is nothing compared to Christ. So Lord, this morning, can we come forward and take your promise to be true? That you are the God who reconciles us. God, may we celebrate your broken body and your blood that was spilled so that we who are far off can be brought near. That we who are enemies can now be called family. God, we're so thankful for the gift of Christ. And we pray that we would honor him and worship him now. For he is infinitely worthy. So we sing now, we take communion now, and we pray. We do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.